before we get into the text itself, I feel like we need to do two things this morning. One is we need to talk about the Apostle Paul, and then we need to talk about the Apostle you, okay? So, what we need to keep in mind this morning uh, is that Paul is in the process of explaining his ministry to a church that he planted and yet has become a little bit resistant to his ministry, in fact, as we'll see this morning, it may be that they've actually come to Paul and said, you know what, we should have asked earlier, but you've never shown us your credentials. Where's your apostle's badge, you know? Can you flash your badge for us? Where is your letters of commendation so we know that you really represent Jesus? Um, and so as he does this, he does something really interesting. As with last week, as with the rest of this series, as we move through chapter 3 and into chapter 4, he helps us to shape the contours of ministry. Oftentimes, the way we go about doing ministry, which I'll define in just a second, is shaped by the way we do other things. By the family, by business, by um, examples ahead of us. Paul only has one paradigm for ministry, and it's Jesus himself. And so as he goes through this, what I'm hoping will happen for us is that he'll trim away the corners of the stuff that's incongruent with the Christian faith, where our method doesn't match our message. Okay. Um, it also gives us a great insight this morning into what God desires to do in your life, not just through your life, but the two always go hand in hand. Okay. That brings us to the second point I want to make. Paul is an apostle with an, a capital A. He was directly appointed by Jesus himself as an authoritative representative of Jesus Christ. That's why when Paul writes a letter, it gets in the Bible, unlike yours, okay? But the title of apostle comes from the concept of apostle. In other words, there are capital A apostles, and then there's apostleship, which is a broader thing. And all that word really means is somebody who carries or conveys a message, an apostle, okay? In that sense, we all have something in common with Paul. I know in modern parlance, we have a tendency to distance the concept of ministry from a lot of your life. And so some people do ministry, some people have real jobs, right? Uh, we make distinctions like that. But the ministry that Paul is talking about this morning, although he lives it out in his calling, with his giftings as an apostle, is the self-same calling that all Christians and the Christian church as a community is called to, the call to make disciples. Okay. That's why when Jesus uh, is just about to ascend into heaven, he speaks to his disciples and he gives them what we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples. And when he defines that, he says that we are to, um, uh, to make disciples by preaching by baptizing and by teaching them to observe everything I've taught you, which, of course, finishes the loop, teaching them to be disciple makers, okay? And so, <clears throat> so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to look at the lens that Paul gives us on his own ministry and see how it reflects or refracts our own calling as Christians, as well as, because making disciples is something that happens by made disciples, as well as we're going to look at exactly what it is that God is doing in our lives as a whole. So let's read the passage through, and then we'll pray, and we'll take a closer look. Chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? 
Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Let's pray. God, we desire as a church, as individual Christians, to follow you. That was the call that you gave on earth, and it's the call that you sent out through your apostles and communicate through your message today to come and to follow you. And that means that we walk in your footsteps. It means so as you go, so we also go. It, it means even that our gate, the way that we walk, should line up with the way that you walked. And so as we look at our um, collective calling to ministry this morning, I pray that you would shape it uh, in, in your own image, that, that you would begin to um, shape the contours of the life that you called us to, that we would see the goodness and the glory and the reality of it. In Jesus' name, amen. He opens up here and he asks a question. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? In the close of the last chapter, he had been forced effectively to defend his ministry. But one of the accusations of Paul is that he is self-commending, that he is promoting himself and that when he speaks so highly of himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ and there are no other witnesses, then, you know, why should we trust him? So he recognizes that even as he's defending himself, because you really can't defend yourself without commending yourself, it goes hand in hand, that he needs to make a clarification. So he asks this question out the gate, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Is this just Paul talking about himself again? Is that what's going on? You'll see that sensitivity throughout the rest of the letter as he defends his ministry. But then he presses it further and he says, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Okay. Now, we don't know much about the opponents of Paul here who were stirring up things in the Corinthian church. Um, but we can see a little bit about them here, that they come with something on paper that Paul doesn't have. Most likely, when you look at the letter as a whole, these are Jewish converts to Christianity who have emphasized the Jewish aspects and have made it their job to find any Christian they can and make them more Jewish, make sure they're circumcised commit them to keeping the law of Moses. So these are not church planters. These are people who find planted churches and then seek to shape them in their own image. Now, who would write a letter of commendation for these people? We don't know, but most likely it comes from the church in Jerusalem. And it's worth recognizing here uh, a couple of things this morning. The Roman Empire was very large, but it didn't have the World Wide Web, right? And so knowing who somebody was when they blew into town uh, was not something where you could just check their Facebook page and look at their credentials, right? And so there is even an early Christian document 
written right after the formation of the New Testament called the Didache. And it's basically just a document to help Christians vet wandering teachers. And it's got all of these ways to do so. But it was very common to send letters of commendation. In fact, this is a tool that Paul made use of all the time. And you'll find in the end of many of his letters, he'll name somebody and say, I'm speaking for them, make sure and take care of them, right? That's a letter of commendation. The irony of this situation, though, is that the Corinthians are asking for Paul's credentials. And here's why. Because the only reason this church exists is because Paul preached the gospel and these people responded to it. If his role as messenger becomes questionable, their reality of receiving the truth of the gospel is eradicated, right? They're literally sawing the branch they're seated on, seated, seated on, right? And so the irony is a strong one. In fact, when you look at Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church, it is one of demonstrated character, restraint, and love. He has made specific choices, not because he had to, but so that they couldn't screw up his motivation, so that they really got what he was really about. He refused to take a paycheck while he pastored the church in Corinth because he wanted them to know that it wasn't about the money. Okay? And so he's done all these things, and so he just asks, do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? When he adds or from you there, it makes me a little bit suspicious of these Jewish opponents. If their letter of recommendation is so great, why would they need to ask for one from the Corinthian church? But that seems to be why Paul references it here. So it has, it has Ponzi scheme. That's, that's what I think of, right? It's like, here's my credentials. Hey, while you're at it, would you write a recommendation so that we can go to another one of Paul's churches and they'll know that we're safe? Right? There's something a little bit suspicious, and I get the feeling here that Paul is prodding at this. But even still, he's not calling the Corinthian church even to come to his defense. Do you see that? He, he doesn't say, are you asking me for a letter of recommendation? You should have written one. That's not what he says. That's really important. Okay? One of the things that we're going to deal with this morning has to do with this idea of credentials. Later on in the passage, he asks, who is sufficient? What makes our sufficiency in these things? What validates us as ministers of the gospel? And it's a tremendously important question. Okay. If we wanted a modern version of this discussion, maybe a good illustration would be, uh, would be graduating from seminary and ordination. Like most of the ways that we credentialize life have to do with degrees. Right? And so it makes us feel better when we go into our doctor's office, a total stranger, and we see his degrees on the wall. Right? But there's this tendency to feel like because we don't have a particular slip of paper, we're disqualified from ministry. I feel that just as much as any of you do. Okay? In fact, I'll push it even further. Remember that what we're talking about this morning is the making of disciples. That doesn't always have officialness to it. That's just part of the Christian life. And I don't know about you, and you might think that I'm insane since my name is on the front door, since I have a role here, but sometimes I don't feel like a full participant of this body, the church. I feel like I could just leave and everything would be fine, that I'm not needed or necessary, and that everybody, for some reason, unbeknownst to me, just puts up with me. I don't know if you can relate to that, but whatever 
whatever that is, it's constantly present in my life. And so this issue for me is not merely, uh, not merely one of you know, systematic value. It's personal. It's not that I need to demonstrate to you my value. I need to demonstrate to myself my value. And I can get caught up in ways of commending myself for usefulness to the body of Christ. In fact, this passage has spoken to me very personally. Because because Paul here points to the church and he says, you are my letter. You are my life's work. And there's a danger, I think, in our day and age to define our personhood in our work in such a way that, for example, being published makes a difference. And I feel that way. Communication is what I do. Teaching is something that I love. It's a question that I sometimes get asked. When are you going to write a book? But there's so many inherent dangers in aspiring to that because I'll tell you what, I'm not convinced that heaven's going to have a library. And one day I was reading this passage and it struck me that as much as I have those desires in and of myself, not only is it a better calling to write lives, but it's the one that I actually want. It's the one that I actually want. And Paul is expressing a similar thing here. He doesn't say, don't you know that I'm a published author? Haven't you read my book? Isn't it surprising here that he doesn't go, letter of recommendation, how about the one that's now scripture that I just wrote to you, right? <laughs> but that's not where he puts this at all. He sees his calling as a Christian minister, which once again, don't, don't narrow that down to just pastors and missionaries and apostles. He sees our calling as Christian ministers as one of writing lives. That's what he says in verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Now notice what he says about this because it's a little bit paradoxical. It, Paul is so good at pressing the envelope of his metaphors, okay, of mixing them, of, of expanding upon them in ways that don't work. And he's clearly going to do that this morning. So notice what he says next. He says that this letter is written on our hearts to be known and read by all. So he takes something very internal and intimate and then makes it very public. It's written on our hearts, which is kind of a surprise. You are the letter of recommendation. Why does he add written on our hearts here? He does something here grammatically that you probably can't see. When he says written here, he puts it in the perfect tense. Here's what that means. It means that it's tattooed there. It's permanent. Okay? He wrote it in Sharpie. Okay. It's written on his heart. That means that this message, as much as it is a method for making known something. That's what an epistle is. That's what a letter is. It's a proclamation. In fact, side note, the difference between the English word letter and the English word epistle is how big is the audience. If it's to be read publicly, it's an epistle. That's why we talk about the New Testament documents being epistles, because they were written to people, but for a bigger audience. Even Philemon, which is written to a single person, is clearly to be read by the whole church. Okay? That makes it an epistle. Okay? That's what he's talking about here is an epistle. And so he says that it's written on his hearts. And so one aspect of this is inherently and totally and completely relational. He says, you want my letter of recommendation? How about my deep love for you, Corinthian church? 
But that's not all. He doesn't leave it there. It's not merely sentimental. He says that this letter, this letter of recommendation that is the church itself, uh, is to be known and read by all. It's a public letter. It's open. It's not stuffed in an envelope. It's posted on every corner to be read and known by all. It's a proclamation. Okay. And so... This is interesting, because basically he says here that the Christian life is a living epistle. The Christian life is, in some way, a message being communicated. And he says that his job as a Christian minister, as a disciple maker, is involved in the writing of those lives. Okay. Now, he says in verse 3, and you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not with tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Do you see how many different ways he talks about this metaphor? He tells us who the letter's written from. He just told us who it's to. He's going to tell us what type of parchment he wrote it on, what type of ink he used. And then he says something really important, and it's the first thing I want to point out. When he says here... Um, you show that you were a letter from Christ delivered by us. Do you see the distinction there? From Christ, which we've delivered. Now, when we read that, that makes the metaphor sound like Paul is the postman. And I'm not actually upset with that metaphor. It's one that Paul uses in other places. He's a herald. He's proclaiming a gospel. But the idea here is not that Jesus has written the letter on the Corinthians' lives and Paul is just carrying it. The word he uses here speaks of an amanuensis, okay, a secretary. Take this down, please, right, that role, okay. And so this is really, really interesting. Paul sees himself involved in the writing, but not the message. Paul sees himself as dictating, or as being dictated to, would be a better way to put it, a message that Jesus is writing. In fact, we can picture the letter here because when it says that the letter is from Jesus, if you read the New Testament epistles, that tells us the opening sentence of every life being written that Paul is talking about. Jesus, the son of the living God, to everyone everywhere. That's how the letter of your life is to begin. But he emphasizes here that it's not Paul's work. Paul's not the one who's done this. This is not Paul commending himself at all, not saying, have you not seen the churches I've planted, the converts I've made? Have you not seen the people rushing down the aisle to give their lives to Jesus? How can you deny the power of my ministry? That's not what he points to. He knows that he's a part of it. He's a facilitator of the ministry in the same way that a secretary is. And so what if, what if you um, were physically injured in such a way that you couldn't write that great American novel you've been planning, but also it freed up your time to do just that. And so you sat every day and you wrote with the help of a secretary and then he published it in his own name. Okay, it'd be maddening, right? Paul won't make the same mistake. He won't make the same mistake. And I, I know we haven't even talked about the rest of the ministry yet, but we have to understand this up front. That this role that God is calling us into in making disciples is only instrumental in nature. Our role in it is necessary, but not important. We are the scalpel. He is the doctor. 
He is the author and finisher of faith, it says in the book of Revelation. We are merely the secretary, okay? And that's super important because I'll tell you what happens. What happens is when we're working with other people's lives, it's very easy for us, without thinking about it, to play the role of savior. And not just because sometimes we're really good at it because we can help and then we feel like we're the hero, but also because oftentimes we're really bad at it, we don't see results, and we feel like if we were just a better person, then everything would be okay. It goes in both directions. Each one of them says the essential ingredient to this person's success in life is me, whether that ingredient is present and good or present and bad. Okay? That's not how Paul sees it. He maintains a distance here. He basically says that he was the first observer, the first audience member of this masterpiece. He was present in the very writing, okay? But it's a different thing. Notice the next thing he says. He says that it was written by Christ, delivered by us, and then written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Now, I'm going to assume this morning that that almost doesn't need to be said. He's talking metaphorically. None of us were expecting this to be involved in ink, and clearly... Paul doesn't say, you are living epistles because you've all gotten tattoos of your favorite verses that I've written, right? That's not the idea here. The idea here is not one that, uh, that is written with ink, but he says, but with the spirit of the living God. But once again, I want you to see that that shows agency, okay? It's not Paul's blood and sweat that has written these letters. It's not even, the, in one sense, it's not even the words that he's spoken, the ink that he's written, in these relationships. It's something that's being done by the Spirit of God. Now, he's going to unpack this in just a moment, but already it's a letter from Christ written in the Spirit of God, right? Do you see how much of this is divine, how much of this is what God is doing? And then he adds the last thing, which is what he's writing on. What are these letters written on? And he says um, at the end, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. Now, once again, do you see how he's mixing metaphors here? He says not with ink, and then he says not on tablets of stone. We don't write on stone with ink. He's really just setting up a whole bunch of pieces to make a massive revelatory connection of passages in the Old Testament. We'll get there in just a second. But when he says not on tablets of stone, but on uh, the human heart, he shows us that this change that's being done is an internal change. It doesn't mean it doesn't manifest external, known and read by all, right? Means that, like I said, we are living epistles, that what God is doing in your life is a public proclamation of the fact that God is real, that God is there, and that God is changing you, right? But the change is not external, but internal, okay? It's rooted in the heart, and it bears fruit in your life. And that's an incredibly important distinction when he says tablets of stone here, what does it make you think of? If you're even just a baseline student of the Bible, it probably makes you think of the Ten Commandments, right? It probably makes you think of Moses. Do you see the distinction that he's making? The credential here is not that he is the lawgiver. The credentials that Paul presents is not that he has brought rules and imposed them upon people, and since they follow them, it evidences his ministry. Once again, this comes back to who his opponents are. The Judaizers, uh, 
their goal was to get people to keep the Old Testament law. They saw that as being an essential aspect of what it means to be saved. This is despite the fact that Jesus was constantly challenging the ability of the external law, knowing what's right and what's wrong, to internally change the heart. And so he's, he's setting up all these pieces to challenge that idea. But here's, here's what it means for us. This ministry that as a Christian we're all called to this morning to make disciples, not only is it a work that God does, but it's a work that God does in a particular way and not in another way. And so the work that he's calling us to is an internal work on people's hearts by the spirit and not an external work with ink on paper or written on the tablets of stones. In fact, notice how he continues here. <coughs> Verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be, and this is what we're going to talk about now, ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Okay, now he's brought in here an idea that you may or may not be familiar with, the idea of covenant. In the modern world, we don't generally make covenants, we make contracts. Marriage would be the one exception. I'll come back to that in just a second. A contract is an exchange of goods and a commitment to that exchange of goods or services, right? And so I'll pay you this amount of money for you to repair this wall in my house. That's a contract, okay? A covenant is slightly different. It's I will give myself to you and you will give yourself to me. What's on the table in a covenant is not goods or services, but loyalty. You may have noticed in one of the worship songs we sang this morning, it mentioned chesed. God's loving kindness is how that Hebrew word is translated throughout the Old Testament. The way that it's used throughout the Old Testament is always in the context of covenant. In fact, you'll find some translate that word as covenant loyalty. When we sing, I will be your God and you will be my people, that's covenant. The covenant of marriage is expressed in Song of Solomon this way. I am my beloved and my beloved's is mine. Right? That's covenant. Okay? Now, when he mentions here the new covenant, he's not creating a new idea. In fact, he's just repeating a phrase that Jesus used. During the Last Supper, according to the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus had broken the bread, blessed it and given and said, take, eat, this is my body, he then took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my shed blood. Okay. Jesus takes Passover and he points to something new that's happening right there on that evening and he ties it up in these words of the new covenant. Now, what Paul does in setting up this passage is he also goes deeper than that. He doesn't just remind us of the words of Jesus. He connects us with two prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who both speak of the new covenant, but in different ways. Okay. So, let's look at those passages very quickly. Um, Ezekiel 36. The majority of the prophets in the Old Testament are in the back half. Ezekiel is one of the major prophets, major not because um, of his league, but because of the size of the letter, the size of the book. Ezekiel 36.
Remember what is going on in the audience that Ezekiel is speaking to. Ezekiel is a prophet called to a people who have failed in keeping the law of Moses, in their commitment to God, in showing their loyalty to God. In fact, one of the images that Ezekiel uses is a broken marriage, that they've been adulterous in their marriage. And so God is speaking to people who have experienced experienced this break in relationship, have failed in what we can rightfully call the old covenant. And God is talking in that context. Notice what he says. He says in verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Listen to this, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Okay, and so what Ezekiel says here is what God is going to do is a new thing. He's not going to give you a rule on the outside. He's not just going to give you the law externally. He's going to take the real problem which is not the stone law. There's nothing wrong with the rules. The rules are good and righteous and true, but they don't enable us to keep them. The heart of stone that we have is the problem, and God says, I'm going to do heart surgery. I'm going to give you a new and a living heart, and on top of that, I'm going to give you my spirit. It's an internal thing that God is going to do, and he says, because of that internal thing, look at uh, verse 27 again, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Okay? So it's a new work. Not because the old covenant was bad, but because it was insufficient. In fact, Paul tells us in another place that the purpose of the law was to demonstrate the insufficiency of the law. To show us that we can't keep it. To point us to Christ as needing a savior. Okay? Now let's also look at Jeremiah, this time in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is just a few books before Ezekiel. I want to look at 3131. Jeremiah speaking here, thus saith the Lord, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, when we put those two passages together, we get a bunch of elements. We get a heart change. We get the giving of the Spirit. We get the label of the new covenant, and we also get forgiveness. All of those things are in mind when Paul is writing his letter here, and he's basically saying, this is what Christian ministry looks like. Subtly here, the challenge he's making to those who stand against them is that they're still operating out of the old model. They're effectively Jews making Jewish converts. 
They're enforcing rules and laws and laying them on people and expecting that to bring change. Their credentials, right, are substantial. The only law of God ever written by the finger of God, right? But they're outdated. They're not up on what's happened. They're a direct denial of the reality of what's happened in Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said at the Last Supper as I quoted it? This cup is the new covenant in my shed blood. The old covenant points forward to not only our need for a savior, but the provision of a savior. That's why the law, the old covenant, doesn't just include a list of rules. It also includes a temple and a priesthood and a sacrificial system, all of which, author of Hebrews tells us, are shadows. But Jesus is the reality. Their fingers pointing to the moon, but not the moon itself. Okay? And so, so the ministry in, that we're talking about, the thing that God is calling us to is inherently miraculous. It has a methodology to it that we should understand. God isn't calling us to be, uh, to be law, uh, judges or lawgivers, to just proclaim the truth of right and wrong, but to proclaim the provision of a Savior in Jesus Christ. And in response to that, there's two things we saw in the New Covenant that come out of it. The first is forgiveness. So that's another thing that the Old Testament law couldn't do. As the author of Hebrews puts it, forgiveness doesn't come at the cost of the blood of bulls and goats. It was never sufficient. If it would have been sufficient, then why did they keep offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice? In fact, Romans chapter 3 tells us that God brought Jesus Christ so that his forgiveness for all the years prior to Jesus' coming would be just. He delayed the punishment until the provision was provided for. Now, I feel like I should lay some groundwork if you're not a Christian this morning. Maybe you're already getting a sense for the unique reality that is Christianity. It's not merely a way of looking at life and a list of rules that if you keep God will save you. It's something totally different. Salvation in the Christian mindset is not something God calls you to do for yourself, but something that he's done for you in Jesus Christ. He's lived the life you could not live. He's died the death that you deserve. He's taken your punishment and he's offered you his reward. And part of that is forgiveness. Forgiveness not paid for in gold or silver or perishable things, but with the precious blood of the Son of God, Peter says. But that's not all. The new covenant is more than just forgiveness for past mistakes. It's enablement for future obedience. And so as we saw, there's also the giving of the Spirit and a new heart. There's a fixing of the internal problem that makes the law so hard to keep. This this is why God is content to proclaim his message through us as living epistles. Because our lives are inherently miraculous. And so he says here, going back to 2 Corinthians, we're ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now let's talk about that phrase because it's easily misunderstood. First off, Paul is not talking about the, uh, the, the positive reality of experiencing God versus the negative reality of reading about God. 
right? It's not, hey man, stay away from the Bible because the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Real Christian life is in encountering God. This other stuff, this Bible stuff, you're just missing what God is doing. That's contextually, do you see this? Contextually, it's nothing to do with what Paul is talking about. It's also not a proclamation that the law was bad, as if God giving the law was plan A and it failed, and so he came up with plan B. When he says here the letter kills, the letter kills because we're worthy of death. (laughs) The letter kills because it demonstrates that we don't live up to God's standards. That doesn't make it a bad law, it makes it a good law. Right? Because it rightly identifies and even demonstrates to the, uh, the criminal that they're worthy of judgment. Okay? The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now this is super important for us just in general this morning as Christians. If you are going to find freedom from the sins that you struggle with, if you're going to walk in obedience as a Christian, you don't need more rules. The rules are important. The rules are good. And you really can't know the boundaries and the contours of Christian obedience without them. But they're insufficient to make the change. The sufficiency of the new covenant comes from the fact that God hasn't just given you a task to do, but has entered your life to help you do it in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's changed internally who you are. And so, this is how Jesus puts it. In John chapter 15, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Do you see the metaphor there? He's thinking of a grapevine. And so there's this thick grapevine and then coming off of it is the branches. And there's two things you should know if you've never looked closely. The fruit, the grapes, grow on the branches. But they don't grow without being attached to the vine, right? You cut the branches off, no more grapes. So he goes on and he says two things. He says, abide in me and you shall bear fruit. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now this is really important for us to get this morning because if we don't understand that in us becoming living epistles, if we don't understand that that comes through God's sufficiency, then we'll never go about ministry in God's sufficiency. The two go hand in hand together. Notice what he says right in the middle here. We skipped over it, but let's go back. Verse 4. Such is the confidence, and I'll just side note, that's the same word translated sufficiency in just a minute. So I'm going to read it the same way. Such is the sufficiency that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is is from God who has made us competent. That word is also sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Do you remember what Paul said at the end of the last chapter, if you were with us last week? He says that the calling in the Christian life is one that is both the fragrance of death and the fragrance of life. It's both triumphant and it's surrender. I'm both a captive in the parade and I'm part of the victory, right? Paul makes those things. And then when he recognizes the fact that in response to his life and message, some will choose life and some will maintain death. He says, who is sufficient for these things? Here we get the answer. Here he says, we're sufficient for these things because God has made us sufficient. Not just in ability, but in the ministry itself. 
If Paul's job was just externally to make people obedient, to form them into an image, he would fail. But the ministry itself is in the granting of forgiveness and the giving of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of Jesus as Savior, and that's where the sufficiency comes from. Listen, you don't need credentials to make disciples beyond the ones that God has already given you. I want to point out one last thing, just in case it's misunderstood. I want you to notice here that Paul says that God is writing letters to be read by all and not, by bio- and not biographies. There's this tendency that I hear in Christianity all the time that reduces the Christian life down to a great adventure and reduces God to an author of an amazing biography. Clearly what we're talking about this morning is biographical. The life that he's writing is yours. But, but it's a letter. It's made to communicate something else. You're not the main character, you're the medium. You're not the one on stage in the limelight, you're the setting. God is transforming you to convey a message. And the message is incredible. It's that there really is a God. That there really is a God who loves human beings. That there really is a way to overcome and experience freedom and forgiveness from sin. And that there really is a goodness to the good way of life. The message is about the author. In one sense, the lives that he's writing in each and every one of us is biographical. But you're not the author. It's autobiographical. And so, this is what God is doing in your life. Whether you feel like a minister or not this morning, if you've received Jesus Christ, you are a living letter. And I've heard preachers before take that and then strap rules on the end of it say, and say, the question is, if you're a good letter or a bad letter, you've got to be careful there. You go right against the grain of the reality that's going on here. God is doing something in our midst. And Paul says, what's happened in the church in Corinth is so miraculous, it validates Paul as a messenger, not as a methodologist, not as some sort of genius communicator. In fact, all of those things seem to be against the reality of who Paul was, but a demonstration of the fact that Jesus has actually accomplished salvation on the cross and made it available through the proclamation of that good news and that the Spirit has actually shown up and changed their lives. Listen to how Paul says it in in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says this in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
that's the audience that received the Christian message in the city of Corinth. Criminals and the aberrant and these types of things, but that's not who they are. They've been transformed. What God is calling us into is not merely obedience, although it always involves it. There's no getting away from that. It's transformation. And the last thing I want to say is that you can do a lot of good things in your life. But at the end of your life, in your heavenly apartment, what are you going to hang on the wall? I'll tell you firsthand, in my limited experience, in the frustrations and failures that I've felt, in the fact that I have a hard time connecting the reality of what God's even done in our midst as a church, and that validation that it brings, I will tell you that there is nothing greater of value in this ministry of writing lives. And that you will never regret not getting around to the book that you wanted to write. And you will never regret not finishing the degree that you wanted to add. And you will never regret not getting the acclaim that you felt deserved. You know what Paul says in another place about this church? He says, you are my joy and my reward. Let's pray. Father, you are calling us this morning simply and totally to rejoice in what you've done in Jesus Christ. We know that the letter remains unfinished in all of our lives. There's still work to be done the transformation isn't yet complete, that there is struggle and that there is sin to be repented of, that there is constant need to ask again for forgiveness, but that doesn't deny that there's transformation. Forgive us, Lord, for recognizing the place where death and decay exists in our life and not noticing, contrary to reality as we know it, the place where life is evident, growing right up in the midst of the decay pray that we'd be able to see it in other people's lives as well. That we wouldn't measure the lives of other Christians against the metric of standards and rules, but of growth and transformation and change. And I honestly believe for every Christian here this morning, you're calling us afresh, once again, into the ministry of making disciples, of proclaiming the God of the new covenant in the new covenant of the living God, proclaiming the reality of what God has done through Jesus Christ and made freely available as proven in us who have taste and tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We praise you. We thank you. We ask that you would continue the work that you began in us and be faithful to complete it just as you promised. In Jesus' name, amen.